This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and it is number three of the series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In our last study, we were very much taken up with the antagonism manifested by Sandalot and Tobiah and all that company. It's rather interesting to realise that when you come to our great epistle to the Ephesians, in the fourth chapter, we have in the very context when it speaks about verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ, it says in um, verse 14, about the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The two seem to go together. If the evil one is, as the scriptures depict him, a mighty fallen spirit with tremendous power, we must expect, while we're in this present witness, to find his antagonism is very real. But there is a danger there's a danger of minimising the satanic work to such an extent that we play into his hands because we don't bother. There's also a danger of magnifying unduly. So we turn from the antagonism of Sandalus and Tobiah to the grace of God and the little handful who've come back to get over this work of building up the wall in Jerusalem. So we are considering this evening the testimony of Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. I forgot to mention last time, but I'll make up for it now if I don't forget it again, that the word Nehemiah is the same word that gives us the words of Isaiah when he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, saith the Lord, when their warfare was over, Jerusalem was restored and prophecy was fulfilled. The word Nahum and the word Nehemiah and the word Noah in the days of the flood are all words that mean comfort. A comfort that's resting upon something that God has done, something that he's doing, something that he's sustaining and helping against all odds. Now, we might have wondered why we read 1 Corinthians 12, because in this company we have no one here that speaks with unknown tongues or lays their hand on the sick and heals them or raises the dead or cleanses lepers or whatnot. Uh, but there is, a, there is a lesson in 1 Corinthians 12, whether you belong to Pentecostal periods or not, and that is that although there may be diversities of gifts, there's one spirit that animates them all. And we shall see in Nehemiah that there was a great diversity among those who were sharing in this work of building, but they were animated by one desire. And that is true of us all at all times. You see how the apostle plays about with it. He says, the foot cannot say of the hand, I have no, no need of thee. Or if it was all an eye, where would the smelling be? And so on. Well, if it was all pulpit and no, nothing else, be a sorry place, the chapel of the open book, wouldn't it? I was only thinking of that this evening, coming along. If I couldn't get here, or if I wasn't given sufficient food to keep body and soul together, if nobody had anything to do except the things to do with what, what we call the spirit, there'd be a lack. And so we've got now in this chapter 3 a diversity of service. 
and yet all blessedly linked together with one object. There's also the thought in Nehemiah, if you'll just um, look at chapter 13, verse 14, I think it is. Chapter 13, verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Remember me and blot not out of a book, the word is. So, don't look at this chapter 3 of Nehemiah and say, oh, it's a long list of funny names. Why bother about that? Why occupy our time in 1960 with people whose name is Merrimoth and Hassaniah and I don't know what? But friends, this is a book of remembrance written by God. And as long as the Bible is in circulation, the men with the funny names who, against all odds, built the wall of Jerusalem will be remembered. As we get in the prophet Malachi, the same thought, in days of declension and darkness, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Or in the epistle to the Hebrews, God is not unrighteous to forget your work of faith and labour of love. So it's good to know that in spite of the sneer of Sam Ballot, what do these feeble Jews? Will they build it in a day, you know, poking fun, and then when they found the wall was built, they adopted other methods. Oh, why waste your time up there in that little tiny spot? Come down into the plain, the great broad plain, and have a conference. You see, either way, just to stop the work that God has given you to do. So, <clears throat> I think if we'll let this Nehemiah 3 speak to us, we shall find that instead of it being just a list of peculiar names, it's going to just be a little word for each one of us to say how varied the work of God may be, how well it fits the fact that not one of us are exactly like anybody else. I don't know whether you're glad about that or sorry. But you see, <coughs> just as the very members of the body differ, and have all got their functions, and if they're only doing their part, each one doing his part, the body grows, increases, and builds, it, builds up itself in love, so here. So let's start, shall we? Then, <coughs> chapter 3, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They sanctified it, and set up the doors of it. Even unto the tower of Mia they sanctified it, unto the tower of Hananiel. Now, Eliashib was a high priest. And you wouldn't expect the high priest to be building a wall. But of course, prime ministers uh, build walls sometimes. And here was a reason. The sheep gate was associated with the temple and the sacrifice, the altar and the offering. And it looked as though it was the part of the work of the high priest and those with him, not merely to minister in a temple that was already erected, but to see to its erection. There seems to be here a touch of the holiness. This wall was no common wall. It was a wall that had to do with encircling and protecting that which had to do with the worship of God. And sometimes that is rather sniffed at as though, well, that's not so important as social reform and what, you, what not. But you remember the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments commence with that. 
doesn't really touch upon social things like thou shalt not bear false witness or thou shalt not covet, but it says thou shalt have no other gods before me. And by the time you sorted it out, you realise that if you're wrong with regard to your approach to God, it doesn't matter very much where you are or what you're doing afterwards, but it'll sure to go astray. So now we've got Eliashim starting the building of the wall, giving a sort of a sanction to the thought, this is no mere common piece of masonry. This is something which is going to be built so that as we read in the book, when they put up the gates thereof and the bolts thereof and the bars thereof, they could protect their Sabbath, they could protect their temple, and they could once more feel that they were back again in the city that bore the name Jerusalem, that God said ultimately his name would be there. Well, we mustn't carry on like that, of course, with one verse, because there's quite a number of these people, and I'd like to pursue this thought a little further. It says, And next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and Jericho has got a bad name in Scripture. In fact, it was said that if anyone rebuilt Jericho after it had been once destroyed, he would build it in the death of his firstborn. So bad was Jericho in the estimate of God. But you've got to be careful about judging one another because of their antecedents or their connections. Here were the men of Jericho. They were coming to help build. And as they were believers or associates, they joined and next to them builded Zachar, the son of Imri. And we don't know anything about him except his name. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. Now here's a little note. Uh, these people did a bit extra. Up till now they were building the wall. And perhaps that's all they could do. It doesn't follow that because you can build a wall, you can put up a gate, and if you do, it might not shut or it might not open. So don't all rush in, friends, to do everybody's work because we've read that these did a bit more. But it is fine to discover some. I always remember as a young man hearing Spurgeon's son give a lecture that his father had prepared on a candle. Oh, he had all sorts of things about candles, and he ended up with a great candelabra with all the little lights twinkling on it, and he said, this is the, this is all the churches together forming the great Christian community. And he picked up one, he says, this is a dip, and he put it in the top of the old rock of the Baptist. Well, I'm not going to teach you that. But at the same time, he said, now, here's a candle that's got an adapted base. It went down to a point. And he says, you know the person, you say to him, uh, could you give us a hand in our Bible class this afternoon? Oh, I'm no good at Bible classes. Could you do anything with regard to Sunday school? Never spoke to a Sunday school in my life. Could you speak in the open air? Oh, I wouldn't like to do that to save my life. Would you come on the Sunday morning and light our stove for us? Oh, I'm afraid I might blow through the roof, you see? That's one man. Then the other man, you say to him, and he fits a ginger beer bottle, he fits the candlestick, he fits them all. So here we have a little company who are not merely built the wall. But they did the fish gate, beams, doors, locks, and bars. And next unto them repaired Meribos. I like that man's name somehow, and I think you will presently. The son of Uriah, the son of Kods. Now what about this man Meribos? If you look at verse 21, you'll find he appears again. Oh, there's a whole series still building, and after him repaired Meribos. 
the son of Elijah, the son of cause another peace. Merimoth was the man of another peace. He would have, he would have uh, appreciated the words in the Sermon on the Mount. If a man compel you to go with him one mile, go with him another piece. And there's plenty of room, friends, in a work like this for Mary Moth, not only to do his own bit, but to do another piece. But of course the pity of it is sometimes because there's somebody else who hasn't even done one bit. I don't know. I'm not speaking about anybody here. But don't you see, it's beginning to take a little shape about a busy, active work that can, as it were, Adam Brayton foreshadow something of the Christian way in which we may all work together and do our bit. So we've got this Merimoth, another piece. Now, if you look at uh, look at verse 21 again, I think we shall see another reason. After him repaired Merimoth, the son of Elijah, the son of Koz, another piece, from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. Oh, have you got it? Have you got what he did? Look, Eliashib is working away because he's the high priest on the sheep gate. Well, he can't do his own bit. So Merimoth says, all right, I'll do your bit too. He did another piece. But it was all helping, wasn't it? So although he wasn't allowed to build the sacred sheep gate because of its association with altar and sacrifice and priest, he could step in and do the bit that would have been left perhaps rather bad or not done at all because Eliashib couldn't be in two places at once. I think there's a lesson for us. I don't want to try to interpret it. I hope that as you sit and listen, you'll say to yourself, now don't say to yourself, well, I'm glad so-and-so's here, that fits him or her, you see. Don't do that. Say, I'm glad I'm here, for it fits me, you see. That's right. That's how the Word of God ought to be considered. What would have me to do? And you know how the Lord rebuked Peter when he said to the Lord, now what's John going to do? He says, what's that to thee, Peter? You've got enough to do to look after yourself. You know that, don't you? And Peter said, yes, I do, Lord, I guess. So where we have Merimoth, and you will find that um, he has a sort of an example set. Verse 22, while we're looking at him. Eliashim, and after him repaired the priests, the men of the plain. So the priests, the men of the plain, they were, some who were living outside and some were living in, they seem to have been moved a bit and thought, well, he's come forward to help Eliashib. We'll do our bit next to him. So there's an interchange. Each one, as it were, stimulating the other. And then if you look at Ezra, just a few pages back, Nehemiah and Ezra go together, as you remember, the 8th chapter and verse 33. You read this. Ezra 8.33 Now on the fourth day was the silver and the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, son of Uriah the priest, and with him was in Eliezer, and so on. Merimoth. Well, he's, he's handling silver and gold now. Oh yes, there are promotions in God's service. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in that which is much. Here's the man who, first of all, takes on double duty with regard to very hard and difficult work, building, as they were in such circumstances, rough stone and mortar. And here we find him 
and in gold and silver. And so there's that sort of promotion. Well, we come back again now then and look at chapter 3, verse 5. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. The Tekoites, I think, I'm not sure, may be mentioned in chapter 4.13. Let's look. No, I've got, a, I've got a note there that I thought may have been used. And the next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. So these people, the ordinary people, were doing their bit, uh, but the nobility uh, stood aloof. I hope when I say the word nobility, <coughs> you remember that that is connected with the Berean attitude. For the Lord said, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with all readiness of mind and then searched the scriptures daily to see if it was so. And that word noble is the, the word that gives us the word eugenics. They were highly born. They were very, very healthy. They were noble. But these nobles, they seemed to feel that it was not their work to do. So a high priest could labour in building, but the nobles, they felt it was beneath them. So shall we have a look at um, chapter 3, 17? <coughs> And after him repaired the Levites, Reham, the son of Bani. Next unto him repaired Ashablah, the ruler of half part of Keda on his part. And, uh, wait a minute, that looks as though I haven't quite got that passage correct. Just let me test again. 327. 327. I slipped it up. See, even I can make a mistake, friends. Sometimes you, re you realise that, don't you? 327. And after them, the Tekoites repaired another piece. There it is. I have a feeling that uh, they were a bit ashamed about their nobles, so they did a bit extra too. Oh, what a little human touch there is about these things when you begin to ponder it. How easy it would have been for us to have said, well, don't waste time over chapter 3 with all those funny names. Let's get on to the next bit. But it's speaking to us, I hope. It's got a word. So we'll go on and have a look at a bit more. <coughs> well, now let's come down to uh, verse 8. Next unto him repaired Azil, the son of Ahiah, of the goldsmiths. Goldsmiths. Well, you don't expect goldsmiths to be labouring with stone and cement. But you say, not only the goldsmiths, look at the next of them. Hananiah, the son of the apothecaries, chemists. And they fortified Jerusalem unto the broad wall. Goldsmiths, apothecaries. So that you're never quite sure just who is going to step in to the breach. After that, we have in verses 9 and 12, Another peculiar <coughs> things that are emphasised. And next unto them repaired Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. So there's the high priest and there's the ruler of the half of Jerusalem. He's taking part. 
And then I won't attempt to read the next verse. But we have in verse 11 that some repaired the, uh, at the other piece and the tower of the furnaces. Just before this, I missed out a little bit where it said in verse 9, they were dealing with the throne of the governor. Look at the variety of things that are being introduced. The sheep gate for the temple, <coughs> the ordinary wall, the throne of the governor, and the furnaces, which have to do apparently with cleansing, like the uh, Gehenna, the place where they put all the rubbish and got rid of it. And here's the next little bit. I'm not saying this is to do with the rubbish, friends. It was only just accidental. And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Paloesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, is the other half coming in, that's good, but he goes one better, and his daughters. So we've got the two rulers, the half part of Jerusalem in verse 9, and the other man, the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. Well now you wouldn't expect the daughters to be labouring in stone and lime. But one of the characteristics of the scripture is that when there's been a day of departure from the truth of God, you'll find that women become prominent. There's Jael, right back in the book of Judges. And there's Deborah. And then we get Esther coming in. And Esther had a great part to play in building this wall, although she never wasn't there. Because she was the queen sitting next to the king when Nehemiah put his petition and said, Oh, the city of my father's sepulchres is all laid waste, the queen sitting by him. That's Esther. So Esther has a place, you see. And then you get Paul speaking as he does about Phoebe, who apparently carried in the folds of her mantle the precious epistle to the Romans across the country. And then how much he has to speak about Aquila and Priscilla, his wife. And he lets out when it's no longer anything that anybody could find fault with that he used to call Priscilla by a pet name. You'll find there's two ways of, of spelling the word Priscilla and I think it was his little affection for her that gives us that little hint. So we've got the daughters coming in, the apothecaries, the goldsmiths, as well as the ordinary men who would expect to do the work. Now in chapter 3, 20, we have a little bit extra now. After him, Bayerat, the son of Zabai, earnestly repaired the other piece from the turning of the wall unto the door of the house of Elijah, the high priest. He did it earnestly. Now, he's associated with Merimoth, this man. You see, next to him is, after him comes Merimoth. And Merimoth is doing an extra bit. And this word, earnestly, comes in chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat, that we, that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. That word wroth is the word earnestly. He was a bit moved. And in chapter 5, verse 6, And I was very angry when I heard their cry and their, these words. That's the word earnestly. It's not ordinary word for earnestly. It means he was moved by being a bit indignant because of what they did. So he did a bit extra. 
So the human element of it is creeping on to see as well as the spiritual side. We can't divorce the one from the other. Now, in chapter 3, 10, and 28 and 29, we've got another little hint. Chapter 3, 10. And next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of Aramath, even over against his house. Even over against his house. Notice that expression. Well, now we'll, uh, we'll look at um, 28 and 29. And from above the horse gate repaired the priests, every one over against his house. And in 29, and after them repaired Zadok the son of Emma over against his house. But what do we find in verse 30? And after him repaired Hananiah, I won't try to read all these names, and after him repaired Meshalem over against his chamber. So there's each one, as it were, doing his best to, um, as it were, his own, own doorstep, his own peace that belonged to him. But there's a little hint in the change of word over against his house and over against his chamber, which you may not observe in the English quite so much. In other words, you could understand those who had a house on the wall that they would build over against their house. It was helping them, you see. The stronger the wall, the better their own property. But he is a lodger. He is a lodger, he's only living in a room. But he does his bit. So there's another nice little bit put down in God's remembrance. He distinguishes between the householder who, for more reasons than one, would be building the wall, and the lodger who might have said, well, it's nothing to do with me, I'm only a lodger. But nevertheless, he's recorded with uh, approbation. Well, then you will notice that um, in chapter 3, 1, it says they sanctified it. Not only did they build, but they sanctified, because it was here the, um, the sacrifice was to be observed. Now, in chapter 13 of this same book of Nehemiah, We have in verse 22, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. To sanctify it. So you see, first of all we have the sheep gate sanctified. And then the sheep gate is used, because now the gate is up, and the whole world, the whole world is built they are able to remember the Sabbath day and keep it. If you read through this book, you see Nehemiah was up against a problem. He was very disturbed because the people of the land were coming in on the Sabbath day and selling wares to the people and the people were buying them. And he could not forbid it really because however much you forbid a thing it's done underhanded. But he says when the locks were on and the bolts were on and the gates were on there, then he said, I'm not going to forbid it, I'll simply shut the gates. Now, I believe there's a lesson there for some of God's people who are very, very keen about what they call discipline in the assembly. If you have an assembly on Christian lines, as in the epistles, you can put into operation the discipline of those epistles. 
But if you're all sixes and sevens as we are today, if the church is in ruin instead of in rule, then don't forget, until you've got the gates thereof and the bolts thereof and the bars thereof, you may be doing more harm than good. Over an excess of zeal. But that will be for those who have ears to hear and feel there's some reason for it. Now we come on again to um, chapter 3, verse 7. There's another feature. Those who were the men of Gibeon mentioned in verse 7. They come apparently from a distance. And again in verse 13. The inhabitants of Zenoah, they built it. And once more in, um, I think the 18th, 19th, we'll find others that are outsiders travelling in. Let's look at 19. The ruler of Mizpah. So we've got these who are not only inside and intimately connected with it, but those who are outside and travelling towards it. And in chapter 315, there's another little hint that might miss you, you might miss. It says in 15, but the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of Kol Hosea, the ruler of part of Mizpah. He built it and covered it. Now I wonder why it says he covered it. Because you'll discover that this has to do with the place where the, um, where the sheep most likely would be brought in, waiting to be taken for the priest's use. And to put a cover up was a protection against sun and weather. So we've got in this building the sheep gate, the house of a king, the armory, the stairs, the gates, the beams, the locks, the bars, the governor's throne, there's a prison, there are the ovens or furnaces, furnaces and the pool. Now I haven't read all those verses because I haven't read the whole chapter through. But you'll discover such a variety of work has been done by these people. Now there's one important feature about this, that there's a date connected with this uh, building of this wall. I think we'll turn for a moment to the prophet Daniel, the ninth chapter. This is not merely a piece of masonry, and that's the end of it. It's the marking of a date which has a great bearing upon prophetic interpretation. Daniel, like Nehemiah, as you remember, was very, very concerned about the state of Jerusalem, that it was desolate. If you look at the ninth chapter, it says in verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Well, when Nehemiah went back, those seventy years were up, you see. And Daniel, he also realised that it was getting very, very near. So, just as Nehemiah was concerned and prayed, you see there are so many words in Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 that are almost echoed by Daniel in chapter 9. He said, he said, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek my prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes 
and prayed. He was concerned about Jerusalem, about the fact that the walls were gone, the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed. And we'll pick up the story in verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. And then it says in verse 10, O whiles I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, came and spoke to him and told him at the beginning of his supplications a command had gone forth and I have come to tell you about the vision. Now, verse 24 is where we pick up the prophecy. Seventy weeks, or better still, seventy sevens, and we find that they mean years, when they mean weeks, in our sense of the word, chapter 10, verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, the margin tells you, that's weeks of days. And I think three sevens are 21. And you will find that 21 days is mentioned in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. So back to Daniel the ninth chapter, 77s are determined marked off upon my people and upon my holy city. And uh, that was to finish transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision of prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, now we've been dealing with that in Nehemiah. Nehemiah the second chapter tells you the date that it was a certain month in the certain reign of a king. So we've now got, if we can only find that data, you will find it given you in the chronologies of your Bibles. You see it in the Companion Bible. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, now that's Christ, so the Bible's committed itself that from that time when that order went out to build Jerusalem unto the coming of Messiah the Prince should be a certain period of time. It should be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Well I wonder why it says seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Why does it divide the two up? Well the pity of it is some translators or interpreters have added them together. But God hasn't added them together. He's divided them. So he says, now there'll be one period which will cover seven weeks. And another period after that will be this remaining portion. And you will discover by going into the Old Testament story of the building of this wall that it occupied seven, seven times seven, forty-nine years. So from the time of the commandment that Nehemiah started to the end of the building of the wall was 49 years. And then from that moment you start computing the great prophecy that runs on to the time of the end. So you see, Nehemiah's building of the wall is something more than a piece of masonry. It's giving us a time. A time when we can start computing the coming of Christ, the setting up of his kingdom and all other things that belong to it. Let's read a bit further. 
I'll go back to verse, the beginning of verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven sevens and threescore and two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Well, it was very evident it was built in troublous times with all the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah and all that crew. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, or shall have nothing. So here we have the crucifixion of Christ. From the time of the finishing of the wall under Nehemiah until the Messiah was cut off and had nothing shall be these three score and two cents. And it works out that way you'll discover that by the time you put down the date when the building of the wall was finished and the date of the crucifixion of Christ, and even if you say, well, none of us really know whether it was in this year or that, well, it, it's so near, so near within a month or two that we only know that it's our inaccuracy, not the scriptures that are wrong. Then after that, we have to wait for the time of the end when the book of the Revelation completes the whole story. And, as he says, the uh, abomination that maketh desolate is mentioned by Christ in Matthew 24, when he says about the second coming, his second coming, when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, then know that the end is near. So now we've got two things with, with regard to our study in Nehemiah. We see the actual building, we see that it has a prophetic uh, import. <coughs> One further point, I think, perhaps, as we've got a moment or two, I would turn to the prophet Haggai. Now, he uh, comes up here near the end, after Daniel. The prophet Haggai is one of the prophets that had to do with the restoration, the people going back to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and he has a word to say to them, as you'll find. This also is dated, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest. So now we have the people with their wall, and they've got their priest. And then the Lord speaks to them. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. See, they built the wall, and they went on building their houses. But they were beginning to forget that their wall and their houses were intimately connected with God's house. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? So you see, the temple wasn't built first and the wall afterwards. That's a backhanded way to speak. Although Ezra comes first in the story, Ezra and Nehemiah together, Nehemiah built the wall, and Ezra came back and rebuilt the temple. But there was an interval, and God had to chide these people. He said, I brought you back, and you built your wall, and you built your houses. You're living in your sealed houses. But this house lies waste. Now, he says, I want you to consider. 
You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Why, that's up to date enough, friends, isn't it? Look at the fabulous wages that some people are earning today in comparison with what, say, our fathers earned 60, 70 years ago. I remember my dad saying to me one day, he says, boy, what's the difference between me and the millionaire? I knew something was coming because he had these funny ways. You'll see bits of it in that book. And he had about cuttings in his pocket, I expect. Oh, he said, the difference between me and the millionaire is he started on his second million. See? And now it says, you put your own wages, but you put it into a bag with holes. Don't you see this false estimate of prosperity? He said, you've forgotten me. And so in Malachi he says, bring on the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now we're here, said the Lord, if I wouldn't open the windows of heaven and pour out you such a blessing that you won't be able to contain it. That's what he said to these people. He may say to us, in other words, and along other lines, Thus said the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it, I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every one, every man, to his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from a fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labour of the hands. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the law, people did fear before the Lord. And then they started to work and they built the house. Well, there we have another feature in this book of Nehemiah that I think has been worth the, the time spent. We see the man's concern and his prayer. We see the preparation of God before ever Nehemiah put up the prayer that Cyrus was the son of Esther, so he had a Jewish mother, although he was the king of Persia. Then we have the opposition of these men like Sandalit and Tobiah. And then we have the determination of this man of God, Nehemiah, to build a wall, whatever they did. And you will find in the next installment that they had to build with sword and trowel. And he had a trumpet beside him. And you might say, well, what's the idea of a trumpet? Well, it wasn't to blow his own trumpet, although they sent letters to the king and says, Nehemiah's trying to make himself a king. It wasn't to blow his own trumpet. It was because of the danger at every point. And if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? So they built with sword and trowel. And the work was done. And as we remember reading, that it joined in two ends together. They made both ends meet friends, in more senses than one. And the war was complete. Well now the next part of the story is that they used that enclosure 
for one very special thing. And that very much includes the title of this chapel. For it was all beginning to lead up to one thing in the prophet, in the book of Nehemiah. A pulpit was built. And the book was opened. And if that's not the centre of the whole witness, there's something very, very wrong. We could have our buildings. We are thankful for this building that we have here. But if that's all it was, it wouldn't be worth the bother. So we'll meet together, I trust God willing, next time to see that the heart and soul of this witness is the opened book. And if you're curious as to why it says in Nehemiah that he went on horseback on a journey where he knew he couldn't possibly get through at night time, so he had to send the men back with his horse and he went alone on foot, you might begin to guess he was after something that he didn't want to say. I believe he went into the ruins of the temple and ransacked and found the roll of the law. He guessed it was there. He wasn't sure. And when he got it, then they went on with their work and then the moment came to bring it out before the people and open it. But that's another story and I trust that what we've had this evening has not been a bad preparation for letting the book speak and giving grace 